Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 51, the book of Acts, chapter 24. Well, as we continue with Acts chapter 24, and we're going to go into depth in chapter 24 today due to some seriously important faith issues in these passages. We find Paul standing before the Roman governor, Felix, in the provincial capital city of Caesarea Maritima. Now the Jewish high priest, Hananiah, and some elders, no doubt meaning other members of the Sanhedrin, they've come to bring charges against Paul. Some unnamed Judean Jews were also present as a show of support for these charges. However, the crimes that Hananiah's hired rhetor presents, a rhetor is a, a professional speaker who uses glorified and flowery words to present a case at a trial. His words regarding the crime are so nonspecific that Felix is having as much trouble understanding them as did Commander Lysias of the Roman Guard who had initially arrested Paul. See, the primary charge seems to be Paul's a pest. And he's an agitator. And he's a ringleader of a sect of Judaism called the Way. Now inherent in this accusation is that the way was seen as something of an aberration among Judean Jews and the Jewish aristocrats especially. They find the believers bothersome and nonconformist and therefore a constant source of trouble. Now the secondary charge is that it is of special interest to the Sadducees, you see, and to the high priest because they say Paul attempted to profane the temple, but they were able to stop him before he actually did. Now exactly what that attempt to profane amounted to is left out. Although we know from Acts chapter 21 that allegedly involved Paul bringing a Gentile into areas of the temple courtyard where Gentiles were prohibited. Now Luke implies that this charge was the result of a bogus rumor that had been spread by some unbelieving diaspora Jews who'd come to Jerusalem from Asia for the Feast of Shavuot. <clears throat> now let's recall that the reason that Paul was here in Caesarea standing before Felix rather than his, this trumped-up affair being handled back in Jerusalem by the Jews themselves under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, is because while Paul was under arrest and being held in the Antonio Fortress, which was a barracks, a guardhouse that was located in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, Commander Lysias got word of a plot by about 40 zealots who intended to free Paul in order to assassinate him. 
Since Paul was a Roman citizen and had demanded his rights as such, it took the Sanhedrin out of the picture as the authority to try Paul. Instead, made it a Roman governmental matter. So Paul was taken to Caesarea under the cover of darkness by a large contingent of well-armed Roman soldiers in order to thwart this murder plot and to assure his safe transfer to the custody of Felix, the governor over Judea. Now before we reread a part of Acts chapter 24, I would like to emphasize something that we have discussed in the last couple of lessons that has great bearing on the understanding of this story. This entire matter against Paul had almost nothing to do with his messianic theology. We do not find his belief that Yeshua was the Messiah or even that Christ was the Son of God brought up. Rather, this hatred against him was because Paul was spending much time with Gentiles in foreign lands and offering them a form of of membership, if you would, in Israel's covenants with God. But without these Gentiles first being circumcised, that is, being converted to Jews. Second of all, Paul was at one time a trusted member of the Sanhedrin. Now even though he was a Pharisee, and so not part of the ruling class that the high priest belonged to, the Sadducees, he was nonetheless enthusiastic and dedicated and he seemed to be the high court's willing point man to hunt down and arrest members of the way wherever they could be found. But on his way to Damascus, Syria to arrest some suspected Jesus sympathizers, Paul had an experience with Christ that turned him against the Sanhedrin. It went so far that he becomes an outspoken leader of the very group that the high court wanted stamped out. This was a huge embarrassment for them and the best solution to end the shame was to eliminate the traitor. And finally, probably most significantly, it was Paul's credentials as a Jew that were being challenged. That is, to many Jews, Paul was not behaving Jewish enough. Or at least that was what was being rumored about him. And so they thought him a turncoat who had decided to embrace Gentiles, befriend the Jews' Roman oppressors. Thus the issues against Paul were mostly cultural and nationalistic as opposed to being theologically based. Well, let's reread part of Acts chapter 24. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 1394. 1394. 
starting at verse 10. When the governor motioned for Shaul to speak, he replied, I know that you have been judge over this nation for a number of years, so I'm glad to make my defense. As you can verify for yourself, it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere else in the city did they find me arguing with anyone or collecting a crowd. Nor can they give you any proof of the things of which they are accusing me. But this I do admit to you. I worship the God of our fathers in accordance with the way, which they call a sect, I continue to believe everything that accords with the Torah, everything written in the prophets. And I continue to have a hope in God, which they too accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Indeed, it is because of this that I make a point of always having a clear conscience in the sight of both God and man. Now, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring a charitable gift to my nation and to offer sacrifices. It was in connection with the latter that they found me in the temple. I had been ceremonially purified. I was not with the crowd. I was not causing a disturbance. But some Jews from the province of Asia, they ought to be here before you to make a charge if they have anything against me. Or else... Let these men themselves say what crime they found me guilty of when I stood in front of the Sanhedrin other than this one thing which I shouted out when I was standing among them. I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But Felix, who had a rather detailed knowledge of things connected with the way, put them off saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. He ordered the captain to keep Shaul in custody, but to let him have considerable liberty, not prevent any of his friends from taking care of his needs. Well, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul. He listened to him as he spoke about trusting in the Messiah, Yeshua. And when Shaul began to discuss righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment, Felix became frightened. He says, for the time being, go away. I'll send for you when I get a chance. At the same time, he hoped that Shaul would offer him a bribe. So, he sent for him rather often, kept talking with him. Well, after two years, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant the Judeans a favor, he left Paul still a prisoner. Well, here begins Paul's defense. Paul demonstrates his understanding of the expected decorum in a trial conducted in the Roman system of justice by using some flattering words that were fully expected about the judge, about Felix. But the reality is Paul doesn't lie. It is true. Felix ought to be adept at getting to the truth because he's been governing the province of Judea for some years now. So he has an understanding of the social and the political climate of the region as well as the unique concerns of Jews. Now first of all, Paul explains he'd only been in Jerusalem for a period of less than two weeks and that his purpose for coming to Jerusalem was to worship. In other words, he came peacefully 
for religious reasons. He had no ulterior motives, such as coming to agitate either against the Jewish ruling class or against Rome. Coming right to the point, Paul also says he did nothing against the temple, he did nothing against the synagogues, and nowhere in the city did he go to argue or, or sow seeds of discord, neither did he collect a crowd in order to speak. But even more, says Paul, his accusers offer nothing but unsubstantiated complaints. They don't even bring one witness to back up their claims. Now I know we've discussed the issue of the separation of the temple and the synagogue on several occasions. But I also know how hard it can be to grasp new concepts. Particularly when they fly in the face of old entrenched ones. I ask you to see this matter not as some arcane fact that only Bible scholars ought to concern themselves with, but rather as essential knowledge for every believer, especially for serious students of the Bible like yourselves. What you're learning is what most Jewish families, whether living in the Holy Land or in the Four Lands, knew in those days as just a matter of everyday life. Frankly, if your goal is to hang on tightly to long-held and cherished Christian traditions about Jews and Jewishness, about Paul, the early church, and the New Testament in general, now would be a good time to take a nap. <laughs> but if you truly want to know what God is telling us in His marvelous use of inspired humans to recount and to record those heady days of the beginning of our faith that I want you to put down your Bibles for the next few minutes. Clear your minds of other thoughts. And I ask you to please listen carefully to what I have to tell you. <clears throat> Notice how Paul makes separate mention of the temple and of the synagogue. And this is because they are separate issues. They operated independently of one another. They had no official connection with one another. And their leadership was different and separate in every imaginable way. And as regards the temple, see, it's the high priest and the Sadducees who are protective of the temple and all of its ritual and, and ceremonial activities because that's what they're in charge of. Even before New Testament times, the temple had become a lucrative business operation in reality. Even though it continued to masquerade as God's authorized spiritual institution on earth and therefore supposedly above reproach. If it is not at all, I think, unfair to say, 
It's like the prosperity doctrine TV ministries that most modern believers are pretty aware of. They purport to be godly, deeply spiritual, and have in mind your best interests. But everything they talk about is about you making more money or about sending your money to them. In fairness, not everything that happened at the temple was wrong, nor was it fake or a deception any more than it is for these TV ministries. For the average Levite priest and temple worker, their surfer, their, their, their service was a selfless labor of love. For them, it was a blessed opportunity to live out the high honor that God had given to the tribe of Levi to be his priests and, and instructors of God's word to the people. They didn't profit from it. It was only the higher ups, the high priest, his family, his friends, some of the senior priests that benefited monetarily, and they fully intended to enrich themselves as much as possible in both wealth and power. A good analogy would be how most modern politicians who eventually leave their offices somehow come away considerably more wealthy than when they went in, while on paper making, only making a modest salary. How does that happen? Yet all the time that they're in office, they extol their, the virtues of their selfless leadership. And they appear on the service to just be dedicated government servants. Their true motives for attaining that office were not and are not pure. It was always simply a means to an end. Let's remember that originally at Mount Sinai, the priesthood in the temple, now it's the wilderness tent sanctuary to be accurate, were commanded by God to be established and operated solely by who? The tribe of Levi. So the temple with its priests was, according to the Torah of Moses, a legitimate and God-ordained institution that would be quite literally the heart and soul of God's chosen people, Israel. The temple was the one and only location where God would place His name for the purpose of communal worship, sacrifice, and observance of His seven biblical feasts. But that heart and soul of the people, the temple, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar just after 600 BC. The priesthood that survived the destruction became meaningless without it, and thus it went defunct. The remaining priests also seem to have had little, if any, actual influence or power over the Jewish people in their exile. And the priesthood never fully recovered to its original state, even after Ezra and Nehemiah managed to rebuild the temple and get it functioning again a few decades after the Jews were released from their Babylonian captivity. 
part of the reason, hear me, part of the reason that that was never quite the same again, you see, was that their authority and their duties had become diluted due to the birth of a second Jewish religious institution. An institution created by the Jews during their Babylonian exile. The synagogue. Now the synagogue was created not as a God-ordained vessel of his power and his authority on earth, but rather out of unpleasant circumstance and human desire. Because the temple had been destroyed, the Jewish people living in exile in Babylon had no way to purify themselves from uncleanness, no way to atone for sins, no direction or authority structure to enforce God's laws upon them. They couldn't celebrate the feasts as they were supposed to. They couldn't mark the Sabbath with sacrifices by the high priest at the Jerusalem temple. The core of their Jewish identity was wiped out when the temple was leveled. And so they found themselves spiritually adrift in a foreign land. Their captors' intentions were for the Jews to become simply another people that they lorded over and assumed that in time the Jews would accept the Babylonian gods and God system. So while the synagogue was neither God authorized nor was it necessarily meant to be a replacement for the temple, it did serve a practical purpose. The synagogue became the new symbol of Jewishness. In my opinion, it should have been only a temporary institution, assuming it should have been created at all until the temple was rebuilt. However, as is typical of humans, once the synagogue was created, once an authority structure was set up, a liturgy of service was established, traditions were created, some time passed, the genie was out of the bottle. There's no putting it back. The common Jew now centered his or her daily faith and religious activities in the synagogue institution. But we must always keep in mind that the synagogue is a man-made invention. It is a creation of human thought and will that was really the consequence of God intentionally punishing His people by taking away what He had earlier given to them the temple and the priesthood with all of its benefits. In a certain sense, the synagogue, at least at its inception, was mankind trying to find a way around God. But I don't want to paint the synagogue as something evil or wrong or instituted with a wicked intent. You know, Gentile Christians should always remember that the church institution was also created as a man-made endeavor. It was not God-commanded. 
The church institution as we know it today was designed as a purely Gentile organization. By and for the benefit of Gentiles, backed by a Roman emperor. Many of the church's ways and traditions were borrowed from the synagogue system, even if most people don't know it. Things like establishing many local facilities, churches, all over the landscape. Declaring a certain day of the week as a set, up, as set apart for communal worship. Something the Bible does not command, but it also does not prohibit. Tithing, singing praises to God, so much more. That all came from the synagogue system. Thus, while the temple was originally God-ordained, it was directed to be maintained by a specifically named line of Levite priests. In New Testament times, the temple was run by the social religious party of the Sadducees, a class of wealthy aristocratic Jews. The synagogue that was purely man-made as of late had become run mostly by the social religious party of the Pharisees, although not in any official capacity. However, don't get the idea that the many synagogues all over the world were somehow joined together under a uniform authority structure of Pharisees. That didn't exist. Each synagogue was, generally speaking, independent. The commonality among them was a result of traditions and customs that developed over time. The temple and the synagogue were indeed rivals. There were jealousies, disputes between them, but they were not opponents. The synagogue leadership and congregation members fully understood that certain rituals and observances had to occur only at the temple. And only the priest could supervise or perform these rituals. And the synagogue recognized the authority of the high priest. But only insofar as it concerned what went on at the temple. All indication is that the priests, and thus the Sadducees, weren't terribly happy at the existence and influence of the synagogue. But it was a fact of life. They couldn't alter it because it was simply too deeply embedded now into the Jewish consciousness. Nearly every Jew, whether living in the Holy Land or out in the diaspora, had an attachment to one synagogue or another. So compromises were made between the temple and the synagogue authorities and they managed to coexist. Now I feel confident in asserting that even if a high priest or the Sanhedrin had ordered the synagogue system to be abandoned, the people would not have obeyed it. They were comfortable with this idea of the synagogue serving some of their local daily religious needs and the temple serving other mostly ceremonial parts of their religious needs. So this that I've just described to you now, this is what Judaism looked like at the time of Yeshua and then Paul 
And we need to take notice that the synagogue was in no way described by Christ or any of the apostles as an illegitimate institution, but rather it was just a reality of Jewish culture. The temple, too, was not depicted by Messiah or any of the apostles as being a hopelessly corrupted institution that had lost all of its value, but rather as something that needed reform. So getting back now to verse 12. Hypothetically speaking, Paul could have offended the temple, but that would have not affected his relationship with the synagogue and vice versa. Every Jew knew that and no doubt so did the Roman Felix as well. And so Paul needed to make it clear to Felix that he committed no wrong against either of those two standard but separate Jewish religious institutions, one of them being the province of the wealthy and the Sadducees, the other the province of the common folk and the Pharisees. Okay, you can pick up your Bibles again. Now we come to one of the most significant and telling declarations of Paul in the book of Acts as well as perhaps in all of his other writings. For those Christians who immediately run to Galatians and a few other passages that seem to say Paul has no regard for the law and that he sees no value in his Jewish heritage, let's look very closely at verse 14. In Acts 24.14 we read this. This is Paul speaking. But this I admit to you. I worship the God of our fathers in accordance with the way which they call a sect. I continue to believe everything that accords with the Torah and everything written in the prophets. Now just so that we can be intellectually honest and not cherry pick between Bible versions to find the one we like the best, here are two other familiar Bible version translations of that same verse. The King James Version says this, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. New American Standard Version. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that it is written in the prophets. Pretty clear that most standard English Bible versions, and I couldn't run across one that didn't, agree that Paul is saying he believes, he agrees with everything written in the Law and the Prophets. But because this statement directly flies in the face of standard Christian doctrine that says Paul is anti-law and that he no longer accepts that the law even exists for believers, let's take some time with this verse because there's more here than meets the eye. 
First of all, Paul says he worships who? The God of his fathers. He hasn't given up Jehovah, the Father, the ancient God of the Hebrew Bible for the new God. The God of those who live in the first part of the first century A.D. God's Son, Jesus. He hasn't given up one for the other. But he also says he believes everything written in the Law and the Prophets. Not some things, all things. Not the slightest bit of change in the written law is contemplated by Paul. So the challenge for us is to discover what he means by the term law in this instance. Now we've talked extensively about this term that in Greek is nomos. But what we found is that the term is broad and it can mean several different things depending on the context. It can mean any law or custom, pagan or Hebrew. It can mean Jewish law, halakha. It can mean the law of Moses, the, the biblical Torah law. So which of these can we know with any assurance that Paul means here? Actually, this is one of the easier instances to determine because he uses the same phrase that Christ uses in Matthew 5, 17-19 to announce his position regarding the law of Moses. He speaks of the law and the prophets as a connected phrase. When the two terms, law and prophets, are used together, tied together, it has a specific meaning. It is referring directly to Holy Scripture. The law, the Torah, and the prophets, you see, are two of the three named sections of Holy Scripture as defined by the Jews. In Hebrew, those three named sections are Torah, Nevaim, Ketuvim. Torah, prophets, writings. The Greek language has no direct word equivalent. Torah. So they use the rather generic term nomos, which means a law, a custom, a tradition. Well, another proof that Paul is speaking of the biblical Torah, not of Jewish law, halakha, is that he says he believes that which is written. Oh boy, here's a key for you Bible students. In Greek, the term is grapho, which means things that are formally written down using an alphabet. In New Testament times, Jewish law, halakha, was not yet written down. I'm going to say that again. In New Testament times, halakha was not written down. One of the many names you see for Halakha is oral law or oral tradition. Another name for it is traditions of the elders. Jewish law, Halakha, only existed in New Testament times in oral form. It had not been written down yet. It wouldn't be until Yehuda Hanasi 
Judah the prince, did so for the first time early in the 3rd century A.D. About 175 years after Paul's day. And he did it in a work called the Mishnah. So for certain, with these two pieces of evidence staring at us, Paul is speaking of the biblical law. The biblical Torah, the law of Moses, as what he believes everything that has been written down. Now I want to sum up this verse like this. Paul says that he is a believer in Yeshua. He is a member of the way. He worships the God of his fathers, the Old Testament God, so to speak. And that he believes all things that are written in the Torah and in the prophets. Folks, if that's what Paul believes, then so do I. And so should you. And I believe this of Paul because it is fully consistent with what Christ says. And without our having to do backflips to make the statements compatible. In Matthew 5, 17 through 19, you probably have it memorized by now. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish but to complete. I tell you until heaven and earth passes away. Not so much as a uter, a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why do I harp on this matter of the law? Bring it up constantly. Because in this context... Neither Christ nor Paul are telling us how to be saved. That's not what they're telling us. They're telling us how to live after we're saved. Big difference. They're telling us to live how to live after we're saved. Just as there's no option A and option B on how to get saved... There's no option A and option B on how to live after we're saved. We are to look to the biblical Torah, the law of Moses, as our written guide for living a righteous life. Where are we never to look? Is to our hearts. But I want to tell you, I can't tell you the hundreds of Christians who gleefully tell me that is exactly where they look as their guide to right and wrong. Their hearts. Over and over I hear this. Oh, my heart tells me this. My heart tells me that. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than anything else and mortally sick. Who can fathom it? Ah, but that's Old Testament. So, Gospel of Mark. Mark 7, 21-23 For from within, out of a person's heart, comes forth wicked thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, indecency, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these things come from within and they make a person unclean. So I pray that we can agree. 
go to the Torah law, which is what Christ told you to do. If you want to know how to live the redeemed life that Christ won for us. And that we've obtained through grace by faith in Him. Then verse 15. Paul gives us his doctrine on the theological issue that would have had the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin that were sitting there listening to his defense grinding their teeth. In fact, when a few days earlier Paul was being questioned by the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, the the assembly quickly devolved into bedlam when he brought up the issue of resurrection such that Lysias had to remove Paul to keep him from being attacked. Paul says that on the matter of resurrection from the dead, that he not only believes in resurrection, but that both the wicked and the righteous will be resurrected. And, says Paul, this belief is how he continues to have hope in God. Once again, What Paul states is in full agreement with his master, Yeshua. In John 5, 24-29, we read this. This is Yeshua speaking. Yes, indeed, I tell you that whoever hears what I am saying, and he trusts the one who sent me, he has eternal life. That is, he will not come up for judgment, but has already crossed over from death to life. Yes, indeed, I tell you that there is coming a time, in fact, it's already here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who listen will come to life. For just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has given the Son life to have in Himself. Also, He's given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Now don't be surprised at this because the time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. The Pharisees would have agreed with Paul. Likely some Pharisees were there in this hearing before Felix because a goodly portion of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. But only to a point would they have agreed on this matter of resurrection. The Sadducees, on the other hand, would have rejected it outright. The Pharisees believed in some form of resurrection of the dead for the righteous, but complete annihilation of the soul in the grave for the wicked. Actually, what the bulk of the Pharisees seem to have believed in as resurrection more resembles what we today might call reincarnation. But the Sadducees believed that the soul was no more immortal than the body. Both ended their existence never to be resuscitated at death, physical death. Now, I don't want to debate a doctrine of resurrection. I just want you to note that both Yeshua and Paul say that everyone 
whether they die in their sins or as a saved person will be resurrected. The difference is one will be resurrected to judgment, the other resurrected to eternal life. So immortal souls are for the evil and the good. It's only what happens to those souls after death that's different. Then Paul ties all this together by saying that as a consequence of worshiping the God of his fathers, being connected to the way, being a believer in Yeshua, continuing to believe everything written in the Torah and the prophets, and having hope in God to raise everyone from the dead, because of all this, he has a clear conscience before God and man. If you want something resembling a systematic theology from Paul, this is likely the closest you'll come. And Paul does not ever create a systematic theology in any of his writings, by the way. So let me say this in modern language. Number one, trust Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. Number two, be connected to the assembly of believers in Yeshua based on your faith in Him as Messiah and the Son of God. Three, believe everything written in the Torah and the prophets. That's right. Trust the law of Moses to tell you what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't vary from person to person. And trust the prophets to be God's word to us not only about the future, but also his warnings about what happens when an individual or a people, a nation, a national leader refuses to obey him. And fourth, know for certain that upon death you will live again. You will. But what happens upon that resurrection from the dead depends on the decisions you make before you die. Will you do the first three things and thus be saved and follow the holy blueprint for a redeemed life? Or will you not and die as the unrighteous? Well, I'll leave that for you to ponder. And we will continue with this starting at verse 17 next week.